Bibles, if you would please, to Philippians chapter 3. And we are in the final message in this third chapter. And I'm continuing with part number 4 of the message, Heaven's Colony. Now, Paul is reminding the Philippian Christians that even though they are in this world, they are not of the world. I am using here James Moffat's terminology for the title of the message. In his Bible translation, he translates, For our conversation is in heaven, as but we are a heavenly colony. We are citizens of heaven. God has colonized earth with his people. Now, the Philippians could well appreciate that statement because they knew what it meant to be a colony. They were a colony far off from Rome, and yet they knew the reality of their citizenship. And so in like manner, Paul says, you are far off from heaven, but you're citizens of heaven, so you must reflect well on that place which you are a part of. So Paul means what he says here as a method of encouragement. In the first message on this little series that we've been doing on Heaven's Colony, there are six encouraging themes that I mentioned that are found so far in the book of Philippians. And the last one that we've been dealing with is being in the world but not being of the world. The world is not your home. One day Christ is coming back and he's going to take us all to our real home. And we're to look forward to that day with great anticipation. And this is where we want to take up the study tonight. I'm going to talk about the return of Christ this evening, and the implication that that has for the encouragement of Christians. So if you stand with me, please, as we're looking in Philippians chapter 3, we'll read these verses together. Verses 20 and 21, Philippians chapter 3. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are indeed thankful that you brought us here tonight. I just ask you, Lord, you'd speak to us through your word. Uh, Help us to be encouraged, as we should be, about the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Our conversation is in heaven. Now, remember that that word conversation means more than just the way that we speak. The underlying word that we have here in the King James translation, the underlying word means much more than just the way that we talk. It means the way that we conduct ourselves, our whole lives, the manner of our conduct. And it's really about this. It's really about citizenship, about how we live and act in this world, being representatives or citizens of another country. Now, being citizens of heaven means that our attitude towards this world changes. In the first part of the message, we looked at how it had an effect on our earthly citizenship. And so we spoke about, first, the responsibility that we have as God's people towards human government. And we learned that because we are citizens of heaven, that that ought to improve the performance of our citizenship under our earthly government. We're told to pray and to honor and to obey those that are in authority. Human government has been ordained by God. It's necessary for the good order of society. And so no matter what kind of government that we live under, every Christian can flourish under that government because God is in control of all governments. God is the one who sets them up. God is the one who tears them down. All government leaders serve at the discretion of our God. 
And so therefore, we don't worry about what government does or what it doesn't do. We do pray that we can live peaceably in this world, being Christians. But our chief concern is really not a political concern. We're concerned about the business of the king of all kings. And so we uh, don't so much worry about what our government does. And if the churches in America, I think, concentrated much more on the fact that we are citizens of heaven and we're following the Lord and, and not so much concerned about what our government is doing, then we would probably be a lot further along in efforts to live peaceably with all men. Uh, the way that the world is going to be changed is not by legislation, but by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we make that our top priority, then we'll make our government a better government. Now, in the second part of the message, we talked about the realm of Christ's kingdom. We are living now in a spiritual kingdom that one day will become a physical kingdom when Christ comes to reign upon this earth. And those of us who are Christians now, we will rule and reign with Christ in his millennial kingdom. Now, for now, we're, we're living in the spiritual realm. Uh, we are under a different king. We have different laws. We have different rights. We're no longer subject to Satan, and we're no longer under the bondage of sin. And that's really the whole key to why that Christians living under physical oppression and abuse, why living under persecution, that God's people can still be happy. Jesus said that we are blessed for righteousness' sake, and he also said in that same phrase that we're blessed when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And this is really part of Paul's encouragement Uh, why he told the Colossians this. He said in Colossians chapter 3, Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. And then last week, in part number 3, we discussed the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection undergirds Paul's argument for the future appearing of Christ. Christ lives. He arose from the grave. And the fact that he lives is really our strength of eternal life. The resurrection is actually the core of the gospel. We can't be saved unless we believe that Christ arose. And it's so central to our faith that Paul says we must believe in the resurrection. We have not, in fact, believed in a saving gospel. Then we saw how that the resurrection is proof of Christ's deity. It's proof of our justification. It's proof of the believer's life that we can live for Christ. And it's also proof of our immortality. And so the resurrection is really the foundational bedrock for what we read here in Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. So now we're going to move on to the fourth part of the message, and this is where we conclude the chapter tonight with the return of Christ. And this is really the main point of this entire discussion. Paul can speak of enduring trials. He can talk about perseverance. He can hold up godly examples for our inspiration. But there is simply nothing that is a greater encouragement for Christians than the return of Jesus Christ. That is our hope. This is the way that Paul stated it in Titus 2, verse 13. He said, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. I mentioned some time ago that when Brother Dwayne Graves was here that he would often use that phrase in his prayers. He uh, almost all the time would say something about looking for that blessed hope. And Christ's return is our hope. But it's sad that there are many Christians who don't even think about it very much. It's not even on their minds, 
that Christ is going to come back. And I think that the greatest danger of complacent Christianity is that we stop looking for the blessed hope. We get so entrenched with what's happening in the world and what our lives are like and what's going on that for some Christians, the thought that Christ will return or the thought of heaven even becomes repulsive to them in one way. There are a lot of questions that arise about it. You know, sometimes as, as parents, parents think too hard about some things, and one of the things they think a lot about is the second coming of Christ. You get a lot of questions about the second coming. And one of them that seems to come up fairly often is this one. What will happen to our children when Jesus comes back? What if our children are not yet saved? What's going to happen to them? Well, the Bible says that when Jesus comes back, we're going to be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. But what happens to those children? Are they going to be left behind? Well, the Bible doesn't answer that question. There isn't any chapter or verse in the Scriptures that says anything about it. And so there are some who prefer to believe that God is going to rapture the children of believing, uh, believing parents. And I wish that I could tell you now that that is the absolute truth, but I just don't know. But because we don't know, there are some Christians who say this, well, if children are not going to be raptured, then I don't want Jesus to come back. I'd rather die. I just, let, just let this generation go on. Let us live out our lives as it is. And I just hope that Jesus doesn't come back because what's going to happen to my baby if Jesus comes back? And so there are Christians who are just so entrenched in the thinking of the world that Paul would look at that and he would say, well, you're just not thinking like citizens of heaven. Abraham said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Kingdom citizens... Those who are citizens of heaven trust God to do rightly. Do we think that we could ever reason above God? Do we think that we have a better idea about how the return of Christ should be and what he should do when he comes back than God does? You know, uh, we, we focus on those kinds of things, but Paul doesn't focus on those kinds of details because when we do, we begin to show a lack of faith. We show that we don't actually trust God, that he's going to do what's right. God is always going to treat us righteously. And I don't think that Paul addressed those kinds of details, because to do so would lead us into endless questions. And when people ask a lot of questions about things like this, what they want to try to do is to vindicate God in his decisions. Just let's try to figure out how God can be righteous and just if he'll just do things the way that we want them to be done. But God doesn't answer every question. There are a lot of things that we just simply don't know, and the Bible doesn't address them, and God doesn't address them, and the writers of the Scripture do not address them because we need some faith. We need some reliance upon God. We need to trust God that he will do rightly. So if we have to have every single question answered, that means that we really don't have faith. And God doesn't answer a lot of questions for this reason. It's because our minds simply cannot handle the answers. The Apostle Paul said that God's ways are past finding out. And so he encourages the Philippians with the hope of Christ's return, but he's never for a moment thinking that there might be some caveats to that, that there really might be some reasons why that the return of Christ is not such a very good idea. And then there are some Christians who have been reading the book of Revelation, and as they read, they sort of miss the point. They get interested in things like, Earthquakes, meteor showers, 
things that are going to happen on the earth. They get interested in things like even the Antichrist himself. And so some of them just kind of got the idea, well, I'd kind of like to stick around and see what's really going to happen. Well, I think Paul would scratch his head at that kind of thinking because there are a lot of people that are very mixed up theologically about the second coming. We're going to look for a few minutes at Christ's return, and let's think about the implication for Christians. Now, first of all is the encouragement of our conduct. We know that Christ is coming back, and armed with that knowledge, there really ought to be a change in our conduct. Now, we definitely do believe in the imminent return of Christ, You can't read the New Testament and not come to the conclusion that all of the New Testament writers very firmly believe that Christ could come in their lifetime. Now, they weren't teaching that he must come in their lifetime, but they held out that possibility, and they were looking for it. They expected that he would come in their lifetime. Now, they weren't date-setters. They're not like a lot of people that we have today. There are a lot of books that are out there. There are a lot of weird formulas and calculations that... People try to draw out of the scriptures, and they try to predict the time of the coming of Christ. And all of that's nonsense. I mean, it's all foolishness. And, and to think that, that somebody who has already stuck their neck out there and said, here's when Christ is coming back, and it didn't happen, you would think that somebody who did that would keep their mouth shut and not say anything again. But the very same people just write another book. Here's the reason why I missed the day. It's going to be this time. And so it... They just keep on guessing. Well, the apostles did believe that Christ could come back in their lifetime, and what that did for them was to excite them to prepare for his coming. Now, they were constantly being ridiculed because they preached about the second coming of Christ. Uh, People mocked and they made fun of Bible teachers because they just kept right on preaching it. Christ hadn't come, but they kept on preaching it. He's coming back. Now, I want you to take your Bible, if you would, and let's turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3. Because Peter addresses this. And I want to look at several verses here. So you'll need to keep your Bibles open there or keep a finger in chapter 3 or in 2 Peter for a little while because we're going to spend some time here. Uh, 2 Peter is a book of encouragement and it's a warning about Christ's coming. Now, if you'll look in chapter 3, beginning in verse number 3, Peter says this. He says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last day scoffers walking after their own lust." And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Now, some people will look at the time that has passed, and because there has been so much time passed, they think that the doctrine of the second coming really can't be true. If Christ is coming, then he should have already come back. He should already be here. Well, Peter goes on in verse number 5, and he reminds them of an Old Testament story. He says, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perish. And so he reminds them to go back to the days of Noah. Noah preached that judgment was coming. He said that there is a great flood coming, and it's going to destroy the whole world. Well, the people looked up in the sky, and they'd never seen rain before, and so they didn't think that it could possibly happen. And so they kept saying things like this. Well, since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were since the beginning of creation. Our fathers died, their fathers before them died, and their fathers before them died, and every day since it has been just like the day before. In other words, 
Tomorrow is going to be just like today. The day after that, it's going to be just like the day. And the day after that, it's going to be just like the day. And so, therefore, judgment is not coming. So Peter says... When people think about the second coming of Christ or mock it, it's just like that. They'll say that Christ is not coming back and tomorrow will be just the same as today. But then he goes on in verse number 8 and he says, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, what Peter is saying there is that time does not matter to God. And he has the very same thing in his mind as James when James said, your life is like a vapor. It appears for a little while and then it vanishes away. And the point here is, what is all that to God? Time doesn't mean anything to God. But then Peter comes to the point here because now he's not really writing this to warn unbelievers. This passage is not intended for people to scare them into think that Jesus is coming back. The passage is really intended to be written towards believers. So he brings this up knowing that Christ will appear at any moment and he says that should have an effect on your conduct. And here's where we come to it in verse number 10. He says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Now, the day of the Lord that he refers to there is the scope of all the happenings of the second coming. You know, those are all those things that we've been talking about in the book of Revelation. It includes the tribulation period. It talks, it's the millennial reign. It's, it's all of those things. The appearance of the Antichrist and the judgments and all of that. That's all a part of the day of the Lord. But it certainly also includes this, the initial appearing of Christ in the clouds to rapture his people away. That time comes suddenly. And if you aren't looking for it, it'll catch you unaware. Now, the point here is that we are to be prepared for that day by what? By this, holy conversation and godliness. Now, isn't that interesting? Because that's the very same thing that Paul says in Philippians 3. He says, conversation, that's our conduct. And so we go right back to Paul's statement there about citizenship. If your conduct reflects your heavenly citizenship, then you will be prepared when Christ comes again. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's go on. The return of Christ means that something is going to happen to our physical body. So next we come to the endurance of the body. He says here, Who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. Our bodies are going to be changed in one of two ways. This is described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now, if you die before Jesus comes back, your body is going to go in the grave. It's like Brother Mac Campbell just passed away. The body is going to go into the grave. And that is, most bodies go into the grave. Some don't because... The body may be destroyed, but that really doesn't matter to God because God has control of all the molecules that are in the universe. 
and he's able to bring bodies back together, that doesn't make any difference to him. But most bodies are going to go into the grave, and when Christ comes back, he will raise the bodies of Christians from the grave. Now, what's he going to do with that body when he raises it? Well, Paul explains it to us in more detail in 1 Corinthians 15. There he's speaking about the body. And he says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. So the body will be raised from the grave and instantly changed from corruption to incorruption. It will be fashioned like Christ's glorious body, described in Philippians 3, verse 21. Now, that's one of the ways the body is going to be changed. The dead bodies of Christians will be changed like Christ's glorious body. But Paul also addresses living Christians. Also, in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Well, now we go back to 1 Corinthians 15 for the details of what happens to the bodies of living Christians. Here Paul says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So all the living and the dead will be changed. Now, the living are also immediately transformed. We don't go through death, but we are immediately transformed to receive that glorious body just like that of Christ. Then it tells us how long the body will endure. He says, for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. Immortality. What does that mean? Well, that means not subject to death. And so we have a body that will live forever. Now, in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, Paul puts the finishing touches on it. He says, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So what Paul is doing here, he's taken us to the greatest heights in Philippians 3.21 when he says that our vile bodies... This corruptible body in which we live is going to be changed and fashioned like Christ's glorious body. And so the bodies of heaven's colony are going to be fitted for life in that real place. Now what we're going to do is we're going to leave this place of sojourning. We're going to leave a place that the Bible describes of living in tents. And we go to our permanent home. We go to our heavenly home and we can't live there without a new, glorious, sinlessly perfect body. And that's what Christ is going to give us. Now, thirdly, something else is going to take place when we're changed and then taken into heaven. When we have received the glorified body, we're ready for the judgment. So next is the expectation of judgment. Now, I hope you still have Second Peter 3 open because we'll go back there. And Peter says in verse 11, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? If there is no judgment, then that statement by Peter is inconsequential. 
Why must we live in holiness and godliness? Well, for sure, it's for this, because we live in this world and we're to be an influence on the world. We're to be a good influence on people. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. So you need to be a good influence on people, and that's, and, uh, that's why you want to live righteously and godly. But let's personalize that just a little bit more because it has an effect on us as well because it determines the outcome of our judgment. Now, Paul says to Timothy, I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. When Christ comes back, along with him comes the time of judgment. Now, Paul's talking to Timothy. He's a Christian. Timothy, just like all Christians, will face God's judgment. We'll all appear at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, we know that we're not going to be judged for our sins there because our sins were judged a long, long time ago. The sins of a Christian were judged in the cross. Jesus took our sins at the cross. He took all of our judgment. So God's not looking at judgment for our sins, but he is looking at judgment for something, and it's judgment for our works. He's going to judge the quality of our works. And so those that are done in holiness and righteousness, those works that are done with the right motive, will bring us a reward. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Now, I'll remind you, he's not talking about hell fire here. The fire here is the penetrating glaze of the Lord Jesus Christ who will burn up all of those foul works. But he says, If any man's work abide which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Now some are looking at judgment. And I'm speaking of Christians now. They're looking at judgment and they say, I am dreading Christ's return because I'm going to be judged. Now, it's like those that we discussed earlier who have everything else on their minds, and they've got all these kinds of reasons why Christ should not come back. And one of them is because of judgment. There's no expectant hope for them in Christ's coming because they're going to be judged. Well, Paul neither uses the judgment seat of Christ as an excuse for Jesus not to come back. He doesn't think like that. What he has is joyous expectation. And that's why he mentions the promise of reward. So he never says, well, I have good news and I have bad news. You're going to get a reward when you get to heaven. That's the good news. The bad news is you're going to be judged before you get it. No, he doesn't think like that. Our citizenship is in heaven from whence we look for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you understand the meaning of conversation here, what Paul means by that word, What really underlies it all, that word conversation, when you understand citizenship, you get this. And the Philippian people got this. They knew that as a colony of Rome, they were to reflect well on Rome. And so how much more, as citizens of heaven, do they want to reflect well on heaven? And so to them, then judgment's not dreadful, it's exciting. Because they expect to hear this, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now, there's not just expectation of judgment, there's joyful expectation of judgment. Now, when all of that is through, 
And we have all these things right, and we're following Paul's plan here of encouragement. When we get through this, when we get through a life that's been lived in good conduct, when we get the body that's been changed, when we get the judgment and it's passed for us, next comes the enjoyment of heaven. Matthew twenty-five twenty-one says, His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. For our conversation is in heaven. Now, here is where this whole discourse of Paul is going. You are a colony of heaven, but when Christ comes back, he's going to call all of the colonists home to their rightful place. Now, I thought what I might do is to extend this chapter somewhat, and we would do an excursus on heaven, and we just talk a lot about heaven. But we're going to come to that when we get in in the book of Revelation. We'll have an extensive period of time to talk about heaven. The whole point of all of this is Paul's encouragement of persecuted Christians. Now, if you go back to chapter 1, you remember what Paul said to them in the very beginning, in 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 the beginning of the book. Now, in the end of the first chapter, he says this, that very first chapter, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now, he's made that statement. You have been given not only to believe, but to suffer for Christ. Now, what Paul has to do is to convince the Corinthians that all this suffering that they're going to go through is worth it. The end result of the suffering has to be good, or else they're stuck in overwhelming discouragement. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, here's where we find the best news possible for Christians. Paul writes, For which cause we faint not? But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day for our light affliction. And it always amazes me when I read that verse. Paul says, for our light affliction. And, he, and he's been through all these things. He's been beaten. He's been stoned. He's been shipwrecked. He's been robbed. I mean, everything's happened to him. But he calls it light affliction. And he says, it's but for a moment. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved... Now, there he's talking about the body. He's talking about this this life that we live. If the earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with heavens. That's that eternal body, eternal in the heavens. Now, what is he talking about here? about things that we cannot see now. He's speaking of things that we can't see but by faith. And so he says, our place is in heaven, and God has given us that wonderful promise. Now, Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen, to an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. So there's all these wonderful promises of God to all the people that are in the colony on earth. And so what he's telling us then, no matter what happens in this life,